Welcome to Shades. I'm your host, Keith David. Now, someone who's not a stranger to me, or perhaps you, if you've listened to one of my other podcasts, um, I'd like to welcome my most recent guest to Shades. It's Louis Fox. Hello. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, nice. Nice booming voice. I like that. Oh, sorry. No, no, tell it's me good. Down, tell me down. Have you been? I've been good. Been a while. It has been a. It has been a minute. Has been a minute. But I'm good. Yeah. How are you? Well, yeah. when I listen to your podcast back, I'm like, when do we get the Keith podcast? Like when I ask you the questions that you ask everybody yeah, else. Yeah, no, quite a few people have been asking for that one. Maybe one day. I hope so. Well, I'm, are you going really to be the host? I would love to be the host. Yeah. Um, but I'm really interested to learn because you've asked people so much about their lives, and off off air we talk about so much and we share so much. Yeah. Um, but I would be very intrigued to know yeah. your story and your history and your journey to this point. Okay, well, I, if I do it, you'll be the host, right? Please. Deal? Deal. All right, cool. I'm in. I'm quite I'm quite introverted, though, so. I know, you know I I, and I know that about you. I yeah. know that about you, but. Um, and if, if I put it out there, though, then my mother hears it, and that's not always good. Yeah, we, we, we all have to. I know. Cross, you know, cross that bridge when we get to it. Give it 10 years, I might be all right then. 10 years? Oh, no. no. <laughs> I'm joking, I'm what a downer. Um, so we're going to go through your life. Let's start back from one of your earliest memories, because mm-hmm. you're, I mean, from where you were, um, as a child to where you are now, it's, it's for a lot of people that are, are queer, mm-hmm. it's quite a big jump. Yeah. So what was one of your first memories as a child? Um, I think my first, like really going back, I actually have a memory of being in nursery. And when I was in nursery, there was this, I think this is my beginning of my queer journey, which has been there since the beginning. Um. In nursery, there was this, I believe it was like an Indian style turban, but the back of the turban had a long piece of cloth that ran almost down to the top of your ass. And I remember (laughs) hiding it every single day at nursery to make sure no one touched it because that was mine all day, every day, because it was my ponytail. Right. So my fake ponytail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, but I would move my head and touch it and maneuver it like it was my real ponytail. And, um, that's one of my, I feel like that was, I was very innocent at that time and no one really had a clue as to what I was doing or why I was doing it. Moving forward into primary school um, that's and secondary school, that's where my earliest memories become much more darker and tougher and testing Well, um, because that's when the bullying started. Um, yeah. And I, I still remember to this day, the first, the first day that started is I was obsessed with Pocahontas, the film. Okay. And I was, it is a bit weird. I'm not, I'm not going to lie. Like when I look back at what I was doing, but I lived in a dream world all of the time. Um, I was reenacting a scene by myself. I didn't really, I didn't really have many friends at the time. I didn't really have many friends period, but um, maneuvering myself down these steps as Pocahontas did in the scene where she first sees uh, John Smith across the river right. um, or across the stream. And um, this boy, this football came towards me and I kind of kicked it back and he was like, oh, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, innocently told him what I was doing. I'm reenacting the scene from Pocahontas. I'm sure you know it's where she sees John Lewis, uh, John Lewis, John the, Lewis, she, the, the high street store from across the way <laughs> on Oxford Street. And she's like, yeah, she's going in for that Black Friday sale. Um, no, John Smith, excuse me. And yeah. he's across the pond, whatever. And she maneuvers her body in t- a type of way. And it was really, I just loved it. And that's what I'm doing. And he was like, that's really weird. And then he called yeah. over his friends. And then they were like, show us what you're doing. And like like a circus act, basically, I reenacted what I was doing. And the laughter and the finger pointing and the ridicule ensued. And never left me after that. It never left me after that. But doing something like that, these mm. these boys obviously thought it was weird. Yeah. For you, did was there no part of you that thought, actually, this is maybe not conforming to what other boys are doing? Mm, no. No, there was no part. I just was so... I kind of thought it was weird that they weren't doing it, mm. is where I was at at that point, before anyone had pointed out that I was the weird one. Um, in my household, although I wasn't understood, I was never stopped from from being that person. So if I was doing this down the stairway in my house, my mum would have just stepped over me to go up the stairs, stepped over me to come down the stairs and never questioned it. So 
when I brought it to the playground, it made no, it, it, there was no thought of, there was no experience, past experience for me to be like, not everybody gets this. So do yourself a favor and just do it yeah. somewhere else. Um, I was just doing it freely and openly. And I just remember from that, I remember being so shocked that they didn't get it. So shocked. Mm. And then after a while, like I didn't come away from that particular experience feeling like I should stop. I felt like they were weird for not getting it. Like, how do you not want to sing Disney songs 24 <laughs> um, seven? Exactly. So, but sh- surely enough, the that kind of just put me as a target on my back for the next however many years of my life that never I could never get rid of um, because that was me displaying I'm different. But do you think your parents should have kind of prepped you a bit more into what would have happened or what did happen obviously to you? Mm. Do you think that's a responsibility down to your parents or do no. they want you to be who you are? I think, well, the thing is I was never open and honest about how things were for me at school. Um, I remember being exposed once in secondary school when I was being chased home from school. And my mum's friend drove past and she was like, I've just um, driven past Louis and he's running from a group of boys. Is everything okay there? And my, when I got in, my mum was like, oh, Glenda's just been on the phone. She just has something a bit odd. And I was like, oh, okay. Not never thinking it was going to be about me. And she was like, she's just drove past you on this road and she saw what she saw. Is everything okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, we do this thing where we race to the lamppost and whoever gets there first is like the winner and I can't help it if I'm the fastest. You know, whatever it was that just came to mind to excuse that and um, quickly sweep that under the rug. And, um, but my mum actually the next day, and I remember it because it was raining, um, she had a massive umbrella. It was one of those, one of them, an umbrella that I knew from a mile off that, shit, that's my mum. And um, she approached the boys the next day and was like, please stop this. Please stop doing this. And they never did it again. But I never, what I was saying is that I was, I never allowed my parents into my world to know that I was having a really shit time, even from primary school. So I don't think they felt the need to prep me because they weren't aware of the reaction and how I was, what I was experiencing at the time. But where, where did that instinct come to protect your, your parents? Because that's a young age to start getting bullied Mm. and to not quite know what the issue is. Right. But for you to not run home and go, mummy, mummy, yeah, that's quite different to what a lot of kids would do. I think that probably comes comes to the relationship I had with my dad at the time, which I would never say was bad, and it certainly isn't now. It's great. Mm. But there was a long period of time, a long journey between the two of us and as a family unit as a whole. Um, my dad is an ex-professional football player. So yeah. when I wasn't that or anything remotely close to it, it was, and as that was developing as I was growing up. And not only was it not what I was, it was also something I was absolutely terrible at, absolutely awful at all sports. Couldn't do a thing. If it was running, I could do it. I was a fast runner because I was athletic from dance. But if it was anything that was skilled, forget it. I was absolutely useless. Always, you know, look on Drag Race when they pick the teams and there's always that one person left at the end and they make a thing of it in the episode. Always me. And it was a given. It was a given. And if it wasn't me, it was this other guy, but it was usually me. And it was just like, I don't give a fuck because I wouldn't want me on the team either. Like it never, (laughs) it was just like a given that of course I'm last, like I'm shit at this. But with my dad, from him being so popular and so well respected and known for being incredibly good at this one thing that in heteronormative society is so celebrated, like he's great at sports and he's also got a name for himself from that. Yeah, because you said he's, he's a f- uh, professional footballer, I was. Yeah, was, yeah. yeah. And then he went semi-pro for the rest of rest of his life. So, but he also played for the county. So within the county that I am from, everybody knew my dad and he was the captain of the football team of that county. So if you followed local football, you absolutely knew my dad. And where yeah. I'm from, most people do follow local football. So there was never this moment of oh, is your son into football or, you know, is he beginning to play? It was always this absolute assumption that who is he playing for? How good is he now? Is he better than you? And my dad always had to have this um, moment of like, almost like a politician when they don't, when they skirt around the actual answer and be like, oh, you know, he's, I think at the time I kind of fake entertained tennis Probably because the girls wore, sc- girls wore them skorts, you know, the shorts yes. with the skirt over the t- top. That probably was what the appeal was to me. And because it was a sport that girls do as well as boys. And at the time, I know um, women's football is a lot more uh, accepted and 
uh, celebrated, but back then not so much. Mm. You were seen as a tomboy, potential lesbian, if you like football, as a girl. So I think that came from the fact that there was this kind of disconnect in the household as to what I was into and what I liked. And although it was never made a problem, it was never celebrated. So when those things started making me, giving me problems, I didn't feel comfortable going home saying, they're saying things about me like this and like that, because I feel as though the answer might have been, well, duh. Do you know what I mean? Like, although we haven't pointed it out to you, you know, this was, you know, it's it's the cross you bear. If these are the things you're into, I think had I had I have been more looking back, I think that was the headspace I was in and the assumptions I had come to at the time. If I had spoken up, given that my mum stepped up without me telling her that I come from a friend, you know how what she saw in the street. Yeah. Um. But that was mid secondary school. But if I had said something to my mum at the time or my dad, I have absolutely no doubt that they probably would have had something to say to the school. They would have been infuriated by it, and they would have done what they could have done to mm. try and stop that from happening anymore. But I was I was too much, too self-aware, too embarrassed yeah. to go home and say that this is what's happening. And it was it became this whole narrative of don't let them know the truth of how shit things really are. Yeah. Because I felt embarrassed for them that I'm that this is this is who their son is. And this is what it's like being me when I'm supposed to be the complete opposite, supposed to be the next sports star um, in whichever which way and be massively popular and celebrated and everybody, you know, like Mufasa on Pride Rock lifting up Simba moment, you Mm. know? And it couldn't have been any different to that. I was very much a hyena at this point, an outcast. Well, what what did your father say? Because obviously you had the pressure of following in his footsteps, Mm. being a professional footballer, and then he having to explain that you probably that was never going to be did you never get any pressure from him there was never there wasn't pressure pressure like that my dad never stopped me from doing it and i was allowed to go and take class in what i was really interested in Mm. um but he did say there was times where he was like you can do that but only under the condition if you take up a sport um which was like okay like i'm really shit at all of them so i don't know which one is the the one for me to fake, um, which ended up being football because I was like, well, why fucking not? Like, I'm cra- like, just do the one that's closest to home and I'll just do football of a Saturday morning and then I'll go and do dance class. But, and I, I'm, I think that was from his ego slightly mm. and probably just for protection on my end, like just be seen to be doing something that's normal, yeah. that's accepted, that's tolerated, particularly from where I'm originally from. For which your is Plymouth, sake, which it? is Plymouth, yeah. yeah, which is on the it's southwest, very southwest, just before Cornwall, of England, of England, yeah. So it it was very much just for your sake, and you know, as much as it is mine, but for your sake, please just do something that might just help you fit in that bit better. Um, however, in trying to fake this whole football situation, things only got worse because mm. I exposed how crap I actually was, and that then in turn meant I was not bullied now from Monday to Friday. I was now bullied from Monday to Saturday because again, I was the last person to be picked on the team. And then nobody wanted me on their team. No one would pass me the ball. Well, I wouldn't pass me the ball either, but because it wasn't going to go anywhere. Do you know what I mean? It was going to go off the pitch or over the fence or wherever because I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. But it just meant like my shame and embarrassment was extended that little bit longer. And it became that another thing of the week that I would dread. Like, Mm -hmm. oh fuck, that means it's like Wednesday. So that's like, three days more until I've got to do that bloody thing. Do you know what I mean? And it was just a lot of oppressive, like trauma, just carry just extending and carrying on and just being like, fuck, I'm such a loser. It must be, it must be exhausting carrying that as a child. Yeah, it was, it was. Um, and I think I did a really good job of it, to be honest, um, looking back, because it never broke me and it never stopped me from the main objective, which was to pursue what I was really interested in. And now that's something that my parents actually really celebrate within me. Like no matter what we said, no matter what anybody else said, you never gave up. You still yeah. kept going and you took the slack and the hate and the bullying and the, the abuse for it for however many years. Um, but it didn't seem like it was a non-negotiable to me. It was a non-negotiable. 
Yeah, but they, they, they saw this from a very early age, didn't they? Because mm. you said that you you was for dancing side of things, you were performing for your for your parents at the about the age of seven in your bedroom. Yeah, um, I think this is in the other podcast, isn't it? Um, it is in the other podcast. When yeah. I mean, it was a very much a weekly thing where I would work on a show in my room every week because I was obsessed with pop music and R and B and hip hop. And um, those three were my were my were my jam for for still now. I would do what I'd call a performance from my bedroom tour because all these shows were constructed in my bedroom. So, and even if I did a tour now, I still think bedroom tour is a really sick title, but yeah. it would have a whole different meaning at this point. But um, <laughs> and it would incorporate parts of my life that didn't exist and then. Only fans, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But which I don't have in case anyone misconstrues. They because I do get asked that, but I feel like that's a part of gay things now. Who doesn't? Who does? You know, like well, no, I think I think the content that you put out there would definitely would, elude. 100%. Yeah, you can yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, for people who that don't don't know you and want to have a look at who mm. you are while they listen to this podcast, it show share is your social media. It's at I am Louis Fox. Louis is spelled differently. It's L E W I E F O X because there Beyonce released an album called I Am Sasha Fierce, and that's when I think I first got Instagram or soon after. Yeah. I've tried to change it because now I'm like, I don't even like that album, but um, yeah. I can't because someone else is fucking taking my name. But um, And it's not even their real name because I asked them oh. um, if I can we can swap handles and they were like, actually, no. And I was like, is that even your real name? And they were like, no, but it's, you know, I'm sticking with it. We'll set up a petition. Yeah, please do. <laughs> so yeah, so basically the, the gist of that is that I would do something in my room most weekends, uh, do something in my room most weekdays and then perform it of a Saturday night. And it was a big thing in my head where, you know, I would have downloaded the backing tracks or gone and bought the backing track from somewhere. This was on CD at the time or rented it. Cause at the time I used to rent um, music books from the, the library. And you in the back, yeah, like in the music section, there would be like, um, or I would ask, like, I remember Pop Idol came up with a karaoke CD, you know, like things like that. Yeah. And I had a karaoke machine. So I would do the reverb and uh, the echoes and whatnot. At seven. Sister, at seven. And be, maybe slightly before that and definitely after that. And my sister would like musically direct. So I'd be like on this line, I need echo on this line. Throughout all the song, I actually just put a bit of reverb on that if you don't mind. On this line, I need you to just have the hairdryer on me very slightly, but don't go past setting one because it's going to be too loud and it's going to drown out my vocals. So just setting one loosely, just give me some type of movement for the, the outfit I'm wearing, which is probably a dressing gown because mm. I used to like to give that a good swish around. And my mum used to kind of like watch the TV through me getting in the way and would then be like oh that's very good very good very good very good and then i'd be like okay i've got do you want some more i've got some more and she'd be like yeah yeah okay but she was watching like whatever was on tv at the time like but back in saturdays when game shows were really a thing yeah um so she'd just be watching so and i would just be doing it off to the left and she mm. I, if you asked her she wouldn't be able to tell you anything that i did because she definitely wasn't watching but she allowed space for me to come down and perform these things mm. and i wish she did watch because i Truly believe they were probably very good. Have but, you um, have you asked her about this later on? No, I don't need to. She loves to tell the stories on my behalf, but she tells them as like funny stories. Like, remember that time when you used to do Nelly's Hot in Here and would remove your clothes? <laughs> I think that at your age is, is, is crazy. <laughs> but it's what we saw. It's what we saw yeah. in the music videos. And like when like I used to like want to be sprinkled with water because in that particular music video and in other music videos, particularly like hip hop dance hall videos. I think there's a Beanie Man video that does this too, where the room gets too hot mm. and from the steam of everybody and the heat from everybody in the room. I don't know if we have it in, in UK, but the sprinklers that are like massive in America yeah. and they turn on. So like for me, it was like, that's the music videos I grew up with. So I wanted to, that was part of my bedroom tour show right. as well. So that's kind of sowed the seed to what you probably would want to be or who mm. you are in life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, where was it from going and doing the singing that you actually realized that you were going to be a dancer? I wanted to go to primarily a dance school because dancing was what I did more of in my room, just danced around to music all of the time. And where I'm from is just in general, I feel like there's more dance classes available than a singing class. You can get more involved. There's a much more of a community in a dance class than a singing lesson, which is generally more one to one. And just where I grew up, it was it was just like the the norm, not the norm, but there was just more dance stuff available than singing stuff. But I was also great at dancing, so I definitely pursued that. But it was when I was in my very early teens, maybe maybe just even before my teenage years, when I I noticed a girl use dance to get out of Plymouth, and she, not that right. that was her reasoning, but she had successfully successfully auditioned for somewhere. That meant she no longer had to live in Plymouth anymore. And that's when I was like, this is why I'm here. This is why I'm staying here. And this is my golden ticket. 
out of this place. But why did was it the bullying that just made you decide that you want to leave Plymouth, or did yeah. you know there was an opportunity for dancing then? Um, probably it? a bit of both, but it was the bullying that definitely drove me away because I just knew I couldn't. There was no way I could survive here. Yeah, there's and, no way. And your schooling was still under the rule of Section Twenty Eight, wasn't it? Yeah, and it was Davina Del Campo, season one drag race who brought that to my attention and i've always thought i was someone who was quite clued up into history and the story of the queer man from the 70s the 80s the 90s prior to that in in lots of social matters but i had never heard of section 28 until davina dal campo spoke about it so openly in season one and i was like the fuck so i was like I, i went instantly went and just googled and read and YouTube videos and everything. And I was like, geez, like I had no idea that this had such a profound effect on my time in education. Although I don't believe it was the result of every, as in like why I was getting bullied, but it was definitely the reason why no one came to help me and why I felt I had no, nothing else but to just grin and bear this until it was over, which was horrendous, which was horrendous. There was, um, there was a particular corridor in my school. It was the art corridor that was just really particularly long. It had like 10 classrooms on this corridor and it just, it probably isn't that long, but at the time it felt like it went on for fucking ever. And it was the one I dreaded, absolutely dreaded, a corridor of dread because, you know, all classes kind of start and finish at the same time. And there was always that intersection of queuing up at your next class whilst the other one comes out and da, da, da. I used to hate that the class that I needed, classroom I needed on that particular corridor was at the very end, not at the beginning where I could just like kind of go through the doors and just like keep myself to the left. I'd have to maneuver myself down this whole corridor to get to the classroom we needed to get to. This particular situation, the story I'll tell now, wasn't by no means the first and by no means the last time this happened, but it was a, it's, it's, it's a strong memory of of the effects of section 28. When I was at school, I felt like there was only two teachers that kind of got me or kind of encouraging of my passions and interests. And definitely was for me, but there was a PE teacher as well who'd never really taught me because I wasn't um, sports driven, but just thought it was cool that I was breaking the norm and was doing dance and whatever else and was getting notoriety for it. And for those who don't know, my my real name is Lewis, not Louis, um, which I changed the day I came to London because I'd had this huge trigger to my name ending in an S sound. When you try and emulate or take the piss of a camp voice, you kind of go heavy on the S's. Mm. And my name ended in an S. So it meant anytime anybody addressed me, they would always intentionally put on that camp voice and overemphasize the S at the end of my name. And I grew to fucking hate my name. And I just have all the names in all of the world. Why did my parents give me one that ended in an S? Knowing how, not knowing, but obviously the way that things have turned out for me at that time. Um, and I was walking down this corridor and the emphasis on my name and everyone was laughing and joking. And I'm talking about over a hundred children because you've got like 10 classrooms, each one having up to 30 children in. At the time, Ali G was really big and he'd brought this to, to the white, predominantly white communities, the term batty boy, which as we know is a Jamaican slang term or a Caribbean slang term for um, being gay, a gay guy, gay boy. And that was being yelled out as, mu- as well as very, you know, a number of other things like where, where I take it or what I, you know, what I do with this and that. And I had this and I had that. And it was, it, I'm talking, you know, like you couldn't make out particular insults over the next one because there was just so much going on. And the whole thing is, all them times are somewhat blurry to me from like that, trying to black it all out. But I always remember this time, Mr. Vavrika was walking just slightly ahead of me on this corridor. He wasn't aware of how bad I was getting it at the time. And he stopped and turned around to look at me. And I was just about where I needed to be in that corridor. And the the whole, it was just rapturous, like a rally against me. And he just turned and looked at me and I was obviously looking incredibly embarrassed and ashamed. And he looked embarrassed and ashamed on my behalf as he was looking at me. And we made eye contact and he just kind of looked really sad for me, really, really sad for me. And I was looking at him to be like, this is this is the reality, but you're the adult here. Yeah. You're the person in charge. The authority and, figure. Yeah. And someone who can silence this if they want to. But he just gave me a look, looked to the floor and then made his way through the rest of the corridor and out the door. And I just remember thinking, wow, like that's that's it then. Like I'm by my I'm in my yeah. I'm, I'm by myself in this. And I just have to get through it. I hadn't even come out. 
I hadn't even had the conversation with myself. I hadn't done anything, any work or thought in that direction. But what I did know is that if this is what it's like when you're not even openly gay, how yeah. much worse is it when you are? But did you, did you have any coping mechanisms with all that bullying? Yes and no. There was, I used to take a bath of a Sunday or at some points during the week. And as the water, I think it was actually a Sunday because as the water would leave the bath, I used to want to stay in the bath as the bath was draining because as the bath drained and you would feel the water, it's actually quite a nice thing to do anyway, even mm. if you're in, if, if you're not going for anything, but you can feel the water drain out of the bath and you can feel it go down your body um, lower and lower. And I used to treat that as some sort, some type of self-therapy because as the water would make its way lower and lower and drain out of, you know, go down the drain. Um, that would be me processing everything that had happened up to that Sunday in that week prior and allowing that to go down the drain with the water yeah. so that I could make space for the bullshit that I was now going to mm. have to endure for the next week. There was a huge amount of detachment like from reality. I mean, did, did, did things get better? At school, what? Yeah, during no, school. No, yeah. nothing ever. Nothing ever got better. And it's why going home now is. I'm actually only realizing this as I'm getting older. Is it going home is a really triggering situation for me mm. because although Plymouth itself is a really pretty place and it has it's on the seafront and it yeah. looks. It, if you googled it and went to Google Images, it looks beautiful. And it it is. It is. I can't see it. I can't see it because of my experiences. But anybody else could. Um, and I'm sure for a seaside town and an experience and fish and chips on the coast, whatever, you would mm. have a lovely, lovely time. But when I go home, the minute there's a part where the train goes through like uh, like some like type of field, very rural landscape, and then it hits Plymouth. And the minute it hits, I'm always, I always, I'm very slightly triggered. I really don't want to be there. I, re I hate yeah. being there. Um, and I claim no part of Plymouth as what's made me who I am today in terms of, you know, like, oh, I'm so proud of my... I'm absolutely not. I claim no part of being from Plymouth whatsoever. In fact, when I... In, unless you ask me where I'm from, I don't talk about it. No. And some there was a time in my life, especially when I moved to London, where I tried... I actually had a really strong accent when I moved here. And when I went to dance school, they were like, we have to work on that because some accents work and some accents don't. Um, when you look a certain way, you need to talk a certain way. Yeah. And you don't look a type of way to have a strong accent. So, because you're not really going to be that mm, amiable, relatable, yeah, friendly person with a northern accent. Your look is a very particular thing, and you need to have a, quite a neutral accent to further that. It's it's very much like a West Country accent. Which, if you're from America, here in the UK, we would kind of call like the Midwest or like very Southern um, hospitality type of accent. Like, like a moonshine vibe yeah so it's very much <laughs> that part of the um of the uk we, oddly enough with a very similar mentality but the accent is um it's very much like that and if you've i don't know like for breakfast this morning i had um actually i didn't even have breakfast this morning i just went to the gym and um because i just thought gosh you've been eating so much recently you don't even need a breakfast this morning just go and do some fasting <laughs> fasted working out and then grab a coffee on the way and then you know hopefully your body will burn off some fat that's naturally stored anyway because there's plenty to go around at the minute and that's uh -huh. how you talk where i'm from yeah. and when i went to dance school they were like no 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 no, that can't that can't wash because that's not that doesn't connect to how mm. you look so I very gladly, um, as you can hear the difference from how I spoke just then Absolutely. to how I speak now, um, put all the time and effort into, again, just letting that go and sounding like just a, a general UK mm. accent. So there was a time as well when people would ask me where I'm from, I wouldn't even say Plymouth. I would yeah. I'd either claim London um, or I would just say somewhere outside of London, Reading, you know, someone yeah. that just had a, another neutral accent. But it took a while for me to to be bothered to talk about that place again. Yeah, but you did manage to get out around about the age of 16, wasn't mm. it? And into dancing, which yeah. was one of your passions. Again, from when I saw that girl leave through her talent, I was like, that's exactly that's exactly the route I'm going to take too. This is kind of actually where me and my dad actually started to connect because we had nothing in common up until this point. But I started auditioning for dance schools at 16 in and around London, was accepted into all of them. Many of them gave me scholarships or funding so that if you know I could come and not have to worry about paying however many thousands a term and everything mm. else 
as long as I was like definitely going there. Although my parents never stopped me from doing anything, it was the the first wake up call that I was actually good. Um, because prior to that, although they never stopped me, there wasn't like a keen, they weren't stagey parents. They were just like, oh, he goes and does that. He catches the bus or we drop him off and then we pick him up and we don't really talk about it. We don't really ask him to show us what he's done or, you know, get that that invested. Whereas there were some, you know, parents who were very much involved and half the time I was late and half the time my parents were late to picking me up. It was very much on their schedule hmm. as to how much of the experience I got. But my dad actually drove me to all of these auditions. And again, credit to my dad, because although he didn't get it, he never stopped me from doing it. And when I wanted to further this and see if there was an opportunity there for me to go and do this professionally full time, he was like, yeah, okay, let's, there's no harm in us auditioning. And my dad drove me, again, we're from, you know, miles away from London, miles and miles. It's a five, six hour drive if the traffic's good. But he would drive me and we'd stay over in a hotel and he would come to the audition the next day. And it was during that process where we actually, if nothing else came from it, if I didn't get in, it was definitely the moment where me and my dad connected because just naturally parent instincts, he was very nervous for me. And because since I was nervous and I was, you know, it was the first time he'd come into my world and I was in my leotard and tights and white socks and mm -hmm. ballet shoes and he's prepping me up and I'm like, are you, are you okay? And I'm like, yeah, I'm just really, just feel like I can't remember anything that I've ever learned, da, 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 da. And um, pep talking me and up into, you know, the ride up to London, the ride back down to where, back to Plymouth was filled with silence. We had nothing in common. We had nothing to talk about, which is very different to how we have our relationship now. But it all came from this. And that's, you know, the audition process was very standard. You do a certain class, usually a ballet technique class, and they would do a cut. And then you would come back, if you've made it through, you'd come back to do a jazz technique or a contemporary technique class, then there'd be another cut. And then if you got through to the end of the day, that's when you would sing your song and do your monologue. And through that, you know, naturally my dad was just very much like, how's it going? Did you get through? And I'd be like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I've got to come back in the, and he'd be like, oh my God, great. Okay. And he got invested in it. And at times he would see me through the window, if depending on where the parents' waiting room was, to be, if it was outside of the room, you know, which I fucking hate when they used to do that, but because you don't want your parents' eyes on you when it's already enough pressure in the situation as it is. Although my dad had no idea what he was watching, you know, like some parents <laughs> would have, have been with their kid the whole way and would yeah. know they've seen their kids do this better and that better. My dad had no idea, which obviously was kind of in those situations is a blessing, but it was the opportunity for my dad to see me do my thing to the best of my ability as it was then in comparison with however many other hundreds of boys across the country. So it, was, it wasn't just me in my dance class where I'm from. He's getting to see me in a situation with everybody from all over the country. That changed everything. That changed absolutely everything. And, and I think my dad actually saw this, oh, this might be really um, self-indulgent, but it was my dad's opportunity to see like where he was with his football and how that connected to where I was with my dancing that we both were, had a talent that could, we could do professionally. Yeah. And suddenly we had something to talk about. And, you know, and when we, uh, you know, my dad would call me at work and if I was in the house and he'd be like, have you got a letter yet? Any, any news from that, that audition? I'd be like, not yet, not yet, dad. You know, they said it's a two week wait, whatever else. And he'd be like, okay, yeah, okay, no worries then. Like he fully became yeah. like, I know you mentioned like a Billy Elliott reference the last Absolutely. time I was here. And it was very much that there was, it was overnight turn and just like, the pressure and the want for me to mm. pursue it and him being in my world and seeing like the competition and the hard work and the technique and the dedication it all took for me to get myself to be in that room. And then when I started getting yeses and yeses and yeses, it was just like, he lived vicariously through me. You know, it was uh -huh. much his success as it was mine. Oh. And then from then on, our, our whole relationship was very different, very different. And I wouldn't say it was bad before that. But yeah. we didn't, we couldn't connect. And that gave us a connection. It's like two different worlds are coming together, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. Massively. So you, you got you got your job dancing, you've moved to London. Uh, were, were there any struggles with being yourself? I really feel like there was. And I feel like this has only become, I don't even know if people are even having this conversation. But I will say, Eleva Day from current season Drag Race mentioned this in a very recent episode. I think it's the top four episode. And I was like, fuck. He's really, he said this in his confessionals when he's not in drag. So I'm assuming his pronouns are he, him, mm. but I could be wrong. He's, he said something that I was like, oh my gosh, that's, that's so profound. That when I went to dance school, it was such a fuckery because the minute you got there, then it became celebrated to be as straight parson as possible because that got you the job. They didn't want the, your effeminate essences 
or qualities. Yeah. They wanted you to dance like a man, sing like a man, make us believe that you're really straight. So the straight guys who were, which there are in the musical theater world were like gold dust. Cause A, there's very few of them. And B, they secure every single job because you know, what's better than getting the straight man to play the straight part? And not only that, but they're incredibly sexualized and fetishized within the industry because they are like, I don't know, they're just seen as gods because they're not pretending to be the part. They are the part. And that's incredibly, for some whatever reason, I feel like it's been very sexualized in terms of the people on the casting panel who are even the gay casting director or musical director or director, associate, whatever. They just fall in love with the straight guy every single time. And I don't know if it's that like straight fantasy thing and he's in our world yeah, probably. vibe. And if it's a female casting director, then she might, um, you know, she might fantasize in a way about him and he's actually straight and da, da, da. I do feel like it's all sexual, sexually related stuff. But I remember when we used to do audition technique, I'd walk in the room, they'd like, or not necessarily me, but I definitely saw this happen. No, 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 stop, stop, stop. Walk out the room, come back in. That was a, that was far too much of a mince coming in the room. Wow. So then we would come back in again and then they'd be like, come back in and introduce yourself, say your name and what you're singing. But can you bring your voice down three or four decibels? Go back out, try that again. So it was this whole mold, again, to try and fit this, this very heteronormative narrative, the illusion, the illusion, because that's what will get you the job. And then when we were in dance class, it was like, there's far too much going on in the hips. You're dancing more feminine than she is, the girl next to you, whatever else. And it was like, fucking hell, like, I don't, I don't, I just want to be me. I just want to dance like yeah. how I want to dance. And this is why I'm here. You know, it was very much like you must fit the norm. And even the gay guys who weren't necessarily the most flamboyant were the ones who were favorites. Mm. They, they were favoritized and pushed and given time. And because they just, they were just celebrated for not being too gay. And I just thought that was, now looking back, I'm like, that's absolute bullshit. And I really hope that's not the case anymore. Yeah. And I see things on Strictly um, where we have um, the gay couple and you just realize it makes no fucking difference. I even went to watch a show recently. The Tom, it's a Tom Jones discography inspired musical called What's New Pussycat? And it's based in the 60s, I believe. But even with that, they've incorporated the dancers to have that room to input something of themselves yeah. into their into the choreography. So there was a bit more mint, so there's a bit more, you know, sissy that walk vibe to it. Yeah. There's a bit more catwalk stomp. And even though when I was at college, that was absolutely not necessary or wanted or needed, even though we all low-key tried to fit it yeah. in and squeeze it in wherever we could find the chance. But and I found found that looking back to be a very toxic and destructive, damaging part of that process. The dance, mm. you know, that the performing arts industry process. And I really hope, I really hope for everybody who's in it now or is still in it now, that that has relaxed because it's really unnecessary because none of it's yeah. fucking real anyway. I guess because it's What's mainstream now that yeah. it probably has been. But one, one thing that, that puzzled me when you, you were telling that story is like mm. you you were bullied for being something slightly off what everyone else was. Yeah. You want to be a dancer. You showed that at home. They didn't quite understand. You finally connected with your dad. You came to somewhere where you probably thought you was going to be exactly who you want to be, express mm. exactly who you want to right. be. And then all of a sudden, you're not that either. No, you're not that. I mean, you could be yourself in class, but it was like, if you want to do this professionally, you need to learn to put on mm. put on the coat, you know, and be the play the part even before you've booked the job. You're already playing the role. And as a result, I feel like there were so many phenomenal dancers in my year that never worked, mm. that never worked. So to me, to relate to this, mm. it'd be like me going to my job doing my job like mm. you're doing your dancing but being told not to be gay feels a bit repressive to me it, it was very repressive and it was it didn't help it didn't help me no. particularly feel any more prouder of being a gay man at that yeah, time yeah that's what I'm, at yeah. that time and i kind of thought that was going to be different um, yeah. and i kind of thought that we're a huge part of this industry if anything we are the industry and everything that we've given to it and everything we continue to give to it that we st but we're still dictated to as to yeah. how and which ways we'll do it and how that will work for us and how to be successful from straight people often enough or well, not always actually but at least you know be demonized for being too yeah. camp in our performance styles or too feminine or too gay too queer and be celebrated when you believed me for a second that I wasn't. And I just think, yeah. fuck that. Fuck that. Did that kind of destroy the illusion of, of, of what you wanted to do? Yeah, 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 massively, massively. But I played, I, I went with it because yeah. there was no other, there was no other option at the time. It definitely, okay. how I was doing it in my head, how I was actually doing it, 
were different things. Yeah. You know, because I had to compartmentalize. I can't actually do this how yeah. I'd love to do it. Have to yeah. do it how it's been taught in with that very straight dancery, macho, strong power vibe and keep to that, stay to that and not sway yeah. from it. So, but at the time, it w- there was no option. So it was, we were all in it together. Mm. But looking back, it, it wasn't, it wasn't okay. It wasn't okay. And I wish, yeah. I hope that's different now. I really do. I mean, I'm not a part of the industry anymore, but yeah. I hope that's different. So what, what, now you said you're not a part of that industry mm. anymore. What did you go on to from dancing? Oh my gosh, what didn't I go on to from dancing? <laughs> that's a, that's the a podcast. But most recently, I have always been very socially aware, socially driven, and had huge concerns and cares for everybody. But I have found myself randomly, and I feel like maybe it's because of, I'm not particularly spiritual, but I just think how much I've gone into this as a person is why this job came to me rather than me hunt this out. But at the minute I work for, and I will probably stick with this for the meantime because I'm really down for the cause, is a cross party, which again is is political and I didn't think I would find myself there, but here I am. But then also looking at myself, I'm like, I'm, it does kind of make sense actually, but um, it's a cross party initiative where we are delivering deliverables to on the basis of social responsibility and social mobility so it's it's very broad but it's about finding those industries and uh, corporations and businesses and charities and um, educational places and uh, all types of things like that law sectors where it's very hard to find yourself in if you're not what we perceive to be the mold so if you're from someone who didn't study at top five university or you're not from um, a well-known postcode, or you're not from someone who's related to someone who's already in this, Mm. or you don't look, or you don't practice the same faith as those who generally get this job. Or when you look at the board of directors, you don't see your color skin. It's about bridging that gap. And couldn't be more prouder, actually, to be doing something that, because I talk about this all of the time on my socials. My housemate calls, oddly enough, because we just mentioned that it's also kind of sexualized, but my housemate calls my socials kind of like a, a Venus flytrap. It will bite you if you come to yeah. And it's something very different when you get involved. Because that's how, what I post about most of the time in my stories. I don't really post mm. pictures because I don't know if people even engage with them anymore. But these stories is always usually talking about what's going on socially or some kind of fuckery somewhere in the world that's really peeved me off but this this thing that i'm doing now is i'm particularly focused on the law sectors where we speak about who are you employing where do you find them how long have you been employing in this type of way how can we change that when was the last time you looked at employing someone who studied here or studied there or was from this part of the country or from that part of the country in terms of diversity how diverse is your workforce and if you are ticking quotas or whatever else you know or actively wanting to become more diverse. When you find these people to come in, uh, work in these, uh, this environment, how do you then make it a safe and comfortable place for them to stay? Mm-hmm. Because it's all good giving them the job. But if you don't understand their differences and the things that, the, the things that are culturally right to them, how are they going to stay? And, it's a, and how are they going to thrive? Yeah. And how are we going to have a, a board of directors that, is a diverse board of directors, which we don't really have at all, really. And that's from my research, not just an assumption. We just don't have that. And I would love to be a part of the change that made it so the Muslim boy from Bradford, potentially queer as well, saw saw himself, not just in the firm, but on the board of directors. directors. The black girl from Lewisham wants to, who's incredibly gifted in healthcare, or whatever, you know, has a real passion for it and mm. has no no reason why she can't be in the situation, be in the fold, and then move her way all the way through to the top. Yeah. So that the future of that, those ethnicities or religious groups, Google, you know, potential people that to follow to see yeah. how they got there, but not just see a white figure, see someone just like them yeah. at the top. And that's the world that I'm trying to create and trying to expand on because that's the world I want to live in and that's what I want for for us so it's an incredible position to not just be able to not just have to talk about it anymore but actually bring about the change 
Because that, that passion is not just something that's been more recent, like developed since the dancing. You said that when you was at school, mm. you was one of the only people that didn't, you know, want to write about, say, who was in the charts or anything quite surface, you know, shallow. You you were uh, way about when you was you wanted to talk about Nelson Mandela. And yeah, I was obsessed with Nelson Mandela. Yeah. yeah, and I don't know why, because I I do know at the time I didn't grasp what what the situation really was, apartheid and imprisonment. Mm. These are all new terms to me and. Even reading and writing about it, I, I was too young to really process the magnitude yeah. of his of his um, experience of life and everything that he stood for. But I do just remember being given a personal project, and it wasn't actually anything to do with try and find a really interesting subject to talk about. It was just an assessment to see where your English reading and writing was at. Mm. So through that, it was like pick up a project of your choice. This is before iPads, phones, and laptops and computers. It was all handwritten, and you had to cut everything out and stick it in with a print stick and whatever else. Nothing could be, nothing was printed. So the normal thing for children of the age was to go for what they were into, which was their local foot, you know, their favorite football team or the Spice Girls or whatever was on TV, their mm. pet rabbit, or I think someone did Princess Diana because she'd recently, you know, been killed, murdered, died. <laughs> we don't know, but you know. Insert. Yeah. yeah insert your v- version of that event there. But I was like, oh, what can I do it on? And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to do it on Nelson Mandela. And I remember my teacher being like, okay, like, the fuck are you going to do that? Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, oh, I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to do it. And this was, I think I was 10. Mm. I think I was in year five at the time. I remember looking forward to doing the personal project as well. Um, my school library didn't have any books on Nelson Mandela or mm. even books that contained information on Nelson Mandela. Didn't have the internet. So um, I spoke to my dad and I was like, I want to do my project on Nelson Mandela, but I can't, like, I don't know what to do because... And I was like, how do I do this about Nelson Mandela? But my dad was all about it. And he was like, yeah, okay. So he used to drive me to all different types of libraries all around Plymouth and the Southwest because we got one there anyway. And wherever we could find anything about, we'd call in advance. And wherever we could find anything about Nelson Mandela, we would do it. And just felt, I just liked him, just really liked him. And it just, I don't know if it was his face, his character, his mannerisms, but I just just sensed this greatness from him. And I was so Mm. interested to know more. And then when I did find out more about his story, I was like, oh my gosh, like just shocked at what goes on in the world at at that age. And I actually won an award for that because I did something so unexpected and did it in detail with, you know, and went so far out of my way at that time, you know, Mm. I only went to the bloody library, but (laughs) as a kid, you know, driving, getting your parents to drive you here, then everywhere, just because I've chosen to do this on on the person I wanted to do it on when it didn't even have to be that. Because you've been an advocate for all different kinds of groups for a long time, haven't you? The yeah. Black Lives Matter, trans. Where did that ally first strike you? Where did you know that you wanted to be a part of all this? I mean, I don't I don't usually like to draw this comparison because I know that everybody's experience is different, but I just mm. know I had a shit time being gay or even before I even had the time to process that I was gay. And I know homophobia is... A completely different thing to racism and some people experience both mm. you know there's plenty of people out there that experience both and that's a whole nother thing and i don't compare but i just i, I just relate to that feeling of being different and being punished mm. excluded traumatized and almost disciplined in a sense yeah. for being different you know and i don't mean disciplined as in like a disciplined person like you know like yeah as if you've been done something wrong. So from that, I just it just became very easy and quick for me to process that other people yeah. experience other things for their differences that don't fit, you know, the the world's norm, whether that be their race, their religion, mm. that how they and things have progressed since then. We, we didn't have non-binary terms and pronouns yeah. and stuff, and, I, and these are all things that I have that have developed in my lifetime. But I hundred percent believe everybody that comes forward with their stories and their experiences. And and I just wanted to listen and respect mm. and learn. And because I know like the the right one to weaponize being woke and the woke crowd yeah. and snowflakes. And I couldn't give a flying fuck about that. Take the word, take snowflakes. None of that offends me. None of that bothers me. Mm. I really don't care if that's the, if that's where you want to take it. Because I'm, I don't even consider myself woke, essentially. Like I don't claim to be like, oh my God, guys, get woke. I don't care. Take that word and weaponize it. I'm doing what's right. Yeah. And that's all That's all there is to it. Do you think if you didn't go through the bullying at school, the detachment from maybe uh, what your family expected of you mm. and all the things that you've been through, do you think you'd still be the same person that you'd want to help others? Or do you think you had to be like gay and an outcast and this before you did that? I mean, I would like to think that 
I always had that in me, but I I do know that feeling the pressures and the the hate that I've experienced made it so much easier for me mm. to to want to listen and understand other people's experiences and perspectives mm. and how it is for them and how it's always been for them and how it's going to be for you know like we've yeah. still got a long way to go. I can't say definitively. I'd love to say that I was always going to be this person, but I also I think it only makes sense that through my own traumas. Well, I think I think writing about Nelson Nelson Mandela when you was what how old about. 10, 9 yeah. or 10, yeah. I think that kind of is a good example of where you're going to be yeah. in life regardless of being Yeah, 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 yeah. And my parents, my dad actually was speaking about, this, about, speaking about this the other day. I was speaking, I was telling him about my friend who's a, a club promoter and she's a trans woman. And my dad is very much like, oh my God, that's great. You know, and because of who I am, he understands like where I sit with it. So he tries to come on board with everything that I care about. Mm. And as does my mom and my sister and her husband and their children. And it was, you know, we were talking about that and he was trying to understand it a bit more and ask questions. And he did make reference to the fact that I've always been someone who's just wanted to accept everybody for who they are and help in ways that I can. I remember I lived on a street with a Down syndrome child who I didn't didn't know till I was an adult was even Down syndrome. Yeah. Even though looking back, I'm like, because Down syndrome people visibly look Down syndrome. And I was like, oh my God, yeah, he was dancing. You know, like I've just kind of been a yeah. bit like, it's never bothered me who you are or what you are. Anybody can be my friend. That might be because yeah. I was starved of friends as a child. So I, I didn't have the room to kind of pick and choose. But then growing up, I, don't, I just feel like naturally, I just had the sense to be like, oh shit, this is how things are for you. That's not, that's yeah. not cool. And that's probably like as much as I could stretch it as a child. But as an adult, I then just became somewhat infuriated and that's where, you know, like when I speak to my dad about some things, he always has to remind me about my delivery of <laughs> when I speak on this topic. Because my dad, you know, will always remind me what you're saying isn't wrong. You're right. But you've got to find a way to make it digestible. Yeah. Because when you come in all guns blazing, it, it, people can't hear what you're saying because they can't get past the attack. Yeah, so you are quite passionate about your beliefs, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, I sound quite placid now, but if this, if this was a different situation, I'd be a different version of myself. But mm. and many people will know that person, uh, that side of me that I'm talking about. But I, I, do, I do understand what my dad is saying. And you do have to find, if you look hot headed and out of control, no, one, no one's going to believe yeah. you. You know, so it is about finding, finding that balance. And that's something I still work on now as a, you know, just yeah. in general. Where, where do you see yourself in about 10 years? Oh my gosh. I, I dread these types of questions because I've never had a good <laughs> Sorry, concept. Sorry, I'm not unique. <laughs> no, no, yeah. No, I've just never had a good yeah. concept of where my life is going okay. or where it could go. And ten when I was, this the scary part of that is that when I was 22, which was 10 years ago, mm. looking at 32, I was like, oh, you know, don't know. But looking yeah. at 42, I would like to have a bit more of an idea about where I want to be. And if that's through... If that's through this job, I would love to think I'd still be doing something where I'm uh, that I'm doing now in ten years' time. That would be amazing. And sometimes I contemplate, yeah. and I don't know if it's impossible, impossible dream about maybe one day running for like to be an MP to run for London yeah. Mayor. Or Absolutely, I want to be the change. I want to see the change, and yeah. I feel like I'm in the position and I have the right contacts now. Obviously, that literally is a ten year journey. Mm. But I don't know, maybe watch this space. I just feel like with me, I I never know. But I end up in the weirdest of, yeah. craziest of situations and opportunities regardless. Don't know how, don't know why, but it happens. And I embrace that and I only encourage more of that. And yeah, I'm gonna. I'm just going to say maybe. Maybe make that as a goal. I think maybe. especially the options that we maybe. have now in London. Yeah. But definitely make that as a goal. If, if people want to get in touch with you and, and maybe um, ask any guidance or just want to have a general chat with you, mm. uh, are you open for that? Absolutely. Where Absolutely. can they find you? Um, I'm not particularly social media savvy. I just have Instagram and that's it. So I would just DM me. Don't be put okay. up on my pictures. I look a very certain way. Yeah. And yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. that's not all of me. It's just a side of me. Um, which I also embrace. I encourage you to do the same. At I am Louis Fox. Yeah, they, um, are, they are very thirst trappy, aren't they? They're very thirst trappy, but it gets your attention, and then before you know it, you're engaged in my social campaign. But thank you for joining us on Shared. No, thank you for having me. Sorry, I've no. gone on for so long. No, it's amazing. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you're still here, take care. Bye bye. Bye.